Hello and welcome to Become an Educator, the podcast that aims to explore the secrets to great teaching in our classrooms. I'm Darren Leslie, and each week I discuss things that will hopefully make an impact in your school, with guests from classroom teachers to head teachers and everyone in between and beyond in the education sector. This week on Becoming Educated, I am joined by the wonderful team behind Inner Drive and the authors of the excellent book, The Science of Learning, 99 Studies That Every Teacher Needs to Know. An upgrade from the blue book, 77 Studies, to the pink book now with 99 Studies. And they are Bradley Bush and Edward Watson. Bradley was one of the early adopters of Becoming Educated and you can find my first interview with Bradley way back in episode two. Bradley is a chartered psychologist with extensive experience working in schools. He's a leading expert at helping schools utilise psychological research. And outside of education, Bradley works with elite athletes, including professional footballers and Team GB Olympic athletes. I'm also joined by Edward Watson. Edward is a graduate of Oxford University who served seven years in the army. After receiving an MBA at the London Business School, he worked as a strategic management consultant for Maricon Associates before running businesses in the computer games market. And now they combine to form the team of Inner Drive. I'd highly recommend you paying a visit to their website and looking up some of their online courses. They are excellent. In this episode, we unpick some of the studies behind the science of learning, 99 studies every teacher needs to know. We discuss the first one of the book, the one about memory, which many teachers will be um, familiar with as we discuss things like retrieval practice and interleaving. I also discuss about revising to music. Is that actually good for us? We also discuss the difference between taking notes on an iPad or a laptop compared to taking notes by hand. Which one is better? And we also discuss the, what was it, the crisis, I think it's called, behind sleep and how much our students are sleeping and why it's important that we educate them on the importance of sleep. We then double back into the classroom and discuss teachers' mindsets and teacher expectations before going on to discuss the hot topic of mobile phones. Should mobile phones be banned or can they be used to enhance teaching and learning? And finally, I ask Bradley and Edward to narrow down all of the 99 studies to a top three must-read that teachers should read that have the highest impact in the classroom. So let's dive right in and hear what Bradley and Ed has to say on this week's episode of Becoming Educated. So on the Becoming Educated podcast today, I have Bradley Bush and Edward Watson from Inner Drive. Um, Bradley, welcome back to the podcast. How are you? 
I'm good. Thanks for having me back. Appreciate it. Well, it's a privilege, as we were mentioning, you were one of the early <laughs> adopters to becoming educated. So it's great to have that thin background and have you back on. And, and Edward, thank you so much for getting to come on the podcast tonight. How are you? I'm fine. And thank you very much as well for having me on board, especially after uh, your experiences with Bradley. It was a surprise. <laughs> so no, it's great to it's great to have the boss on, I suppose, of the, of the inner drive team. So thank you very much. Um, so let's just start with Bradley. Can you share a little bit about what you've been up to since the last time we spoke, which I think was in was it twenty nineteen? Was the last time we spoke? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we've had a I guess an interesting two years um, as a company. We've kind of done more and more CPD um, as interest in the science of learning has kind of. Um, developed um, in terms of, I guess, the last two years in regards to COVID. Um, we kind of spent the first lockdown uh, really uh, just trying to see how we could help and create as many resources as we could for schools and colleges around remote learning and well-being. Um, and then as things kind of settled into the new normal, um, we've been doing a lot of online training and support. It seems a lot of CPDs going that way. Um, which I think might be here to stay. Uh, and now we are sort of all hands on deck, helping students deal with return to school stress, pressure, uh, and doing lots more training around retrieval practice and cognitive load and everything science of learning related, really. No, definitely, the science of learning has definitely taken off. And, and I've, done a, I've done a few of your online courses. Um, oh, nice. And I'd highly recommend them to any pr practitioner listening. They're, they're really good and... and um, a lot of things you share in your infographics are, are brilliant. I listened to you both um, before I get to Edward on um, the Teachers Talk Radio with Kate Jones, and, and I know she's also a fan, and that was wonderful to to hear her talk about your work so so highly because it is wonderful. So um, uh, I mean, yeah, well, I do, it's, it's it's a mutual fan club. We think some of the stuff that Kate's producing around retrieval practice is awesome. So it was a it was an absolute joy to to, to go chat with her then. Yeah. No, definitely. And, and Edward, uh, thanks for coming to coming on to the podcast. And could I ask you just to share a little bit about you and, uh, and your career up to this point, please? Okay, well, I got a degree in chemistry. I went on and took a slightly strange step after leaving, the, uh, leaving university of going into the army back in the day before we invaded people because they looked at a slightly funny background. Uh, and then um, after seven fantastic years in the army, went to the management consulting, then into running a company in on online computer gaming. And then finally, when I thought that I'd done what I needed to do in my life and in my work life, um, I got, I sort of got involved in this, in, in a drive. So 14 years ago, we started up uh, in a drive, um, trying to help um, initially sportsmen, but then, but then really um, people in school schools, teachers, parents, uh, students to uh, to learn better. So that's where I am. And, and Brad and I have been working together now. He's been, a, we've been partners now for 10 years. So uh, we're just like, um, well, we were saying the other day, we're a bit, a bit like a married couple, really. <laughs> know, each other, know each other inside out. And of course, um, we're here to talk about your latest book, The, the Science of Learning. 99 studies that every teacher needs to know published by Routledge and um, can I stick with you Edward and can, can I ask why did you decide to update the science of learning book from 77 studies to 99 studies? Well I said to Bradley after we finished the 77 studies which of course two sevens is my favourite number 
Um, I said that we were never, ever, ever going to write another book because it was quite hard work. Uh, and then um, Bradley basically um, put it in front of me that there was so many, there was so much new stuff that we hadn't covered, uh, and 77 started needing to be updated. And um, to be honest, we'd always wanted a pink book, so uh, we we decided to go for the, uh, the the second edition with an extra 22 studies. Right. So, so Bradley, can you share with us what's new from the first edition? Yeah, um, so I think it was literally the week after we we published the first edition. Uh, I came across a, just the most beautiful study on um, on multiple choice tests, kind of reviewing all the research around how do you construct the perfect multiple choice test. And I remember saying to Edward, I, I, was, I just wish I'd put that in the first book. And I think that's kind of reflective of there's always either new studies coming out or old studies that you kind of eventually find your way to finding. And they just, just add to our, our knowledge. Uh, and what I really wanted, what was new about this is, I think as a community in education, we're getting fairly familiar with some research terms like retrieval practice and spacing and interleaving. But what I wanted in, in this edition is to almost dig a bit deeper and go like, well, how do we do those things or why do they work? So. So one of the studies is on interleaving in the book. And we had one originally, but the second one actually looks at, they explored why interleaving works. Um, so apologies if kind of stating the obvious, uh, interleaving being mixing up topics with it within a subject. But they actually looked at, for example, this concept of discrimination learning, which is being able to identify the differences between similar topics. And that's why interleaving works, for example, is it helps you really think hard about things and work out what's novel or different and you only get that by mixing up the topics really because you're not on autopilot and I was like oh so we now know what interleaving is I think a lot of people are familiar with that but it actually looks at digs deep and looks at why that works uh I think that's kind of where we are in in education is one like we've, we've scratched the surface of science of learning but now we kind of get to go in more nuance or more context or more detail and that's part of the studies we wanted to include Definitely, and, and a lot of these studies are, are really interesting. I love how it's laid out in the books with with the info, infographics, the the main headlines, uh, your one, two, three, fours, and then the classroom implications. So I'm going to dig into a few of them. I've picked out a wide range that I think will suit a, a variety of listeners. So the first one that, that I really like, it kind of going further to what you said there, Bradley, is the one about memory. So, so what does what does the study tell us about high leverage techniques to teach our students to use for their own study? Yeah, so this was the first study in the book, and um, we did it as the first one mainly because I think it's, if you were going to read only one study in education, it'd probably be this one would be the one I'd go for. Um, and it looks at all the different ways students tend to learn or arise and study by themselves, and then went through. I think over hundreds of studies to look at how effective are each of those strategies. And I think the reason we found that quite an interesting one to include was because often we see a lot of students from a range of abilities, from a range of intelligence, uh, telling us that they don't really know how to revise. Uh, and yet we really want to, as a society, I think help develop independent learners. And yet most of the time up until I think fairly recently, we didn't really tell people how to revise. So, I mean, I look back at my early school days and we definitely did revision timetables, but they didn't tell us what to put, how to revise within those timetables. Um, and so this study uh, 
as I say, synthesized a lot of research, came out very positive for retrieval practice, which is the act of generating an answer to a question. So quizzes or multiple choice tests. Um, but quite interesting as well, looked at some that are le least, less effective. Uh, and of course, in a cruel twist of fate, the least effective ones tend to be the most popular. Um, so like highlighting, simply rereading. Um, I think both because they give the like the illusion of learning. Like you can kind of say like, look how many pages I've read today and feel that like you think that's learning or look how many passages have been highlighted. So it kind of almost breeds a false confidence and safety net always from students. But actually when you see the results tend not to be too good. And so I think the two things there are highlighting what works, but also highlighting what doesn't work, even if it's, and especially when it's popular, um, that's what a good study should be. Uh, and that's, I think, why we did that as our first one. Definitely, it's interesting to highlight the things that are least effective. And it's important that we start teaching these things to our students so that they know. I'm going to go into something that, again, feels familiar. And, and Edward, if I can bring you in on this, um, a lot of students like to revise, listen to music. And I know that a lot of them tell me that listening to music helps them. But are there pitfalls to this that students need to be aware of? Um, well, this is, this, for me, this is a very interesting study um, because I, like most students, revised to music. I actually, uh, in my day, that would have been um, Pink Floyd, We Don't Need No Education. Uh, and, and I, like current students, felt that, that you know, it relaxed me. It got me in the mood. I also had this theory, uh, which of course is complete rubbish, that you know you could memorize stuff, and then all you needed to do was to recall a piece of music, and you'd get yourself back where you were revising. So you you kind of associate the knowledge with the with with the music. But actually, this when you start looking at, I mean, it's easy to research. When you start looking at the research, um, you actually get a degradation in in um, in, in revision by studying uh, to, with, with music on in the background. And, it is, and the reasons are not that difficult to discern is that you're, you're using, you know, on the very basic level, you're using up brain power um, or you, you're kind of distracting yourself. And whilst you know, it is relaxing and it gets you into the mood and stuff like that, you just have to be aware that there is a degradation to your performance as a result, particularly the difference between, um, between silence and uh music without lyrics there is some difference but there's a major difference when you start adding lyrics into it which again it, it kind of when you think about it it's kind of obvious that you're trying to process lyrics even if they're your favorite lyrics and by processing you're taking up processing power in your brain is that if i cover that one right Brad? yeah i like absolutely totally and i think what, what i find fascinating is like we know this is actually intuitively true because the example i always give is if you're driving in your car and you know where you're going, you can have the radio on, you can talk to the person next to you, and you can kind of drive on autopilot. But the second you're lost, what does everyone do immediately? They turn the radio off, they go, just don't talk to me for two seconds, like, I just need to think. And so anything that requires that complex thinking, that difficult thinking, music with lyrics is probably going to hinder. For stuff when it's just about effort, like a production line, then it's not too much of an issue because you're not doing anything cognitively demanding. Uh, but as Ed said there, the second you add lyrics, and of course there are some nuances and individual differences, but for the main part, the second you add lyrics, yeah, uh, it, it tends to hinder performance. So in terms of things we can tell our students, 
could they listen to more ambient music without lyrics? Would that be okay, or does that still make a difference? Well, it still makes a difference. It's just again, it's it is it's quite this is quite a controversial subject because there is a there is a balance between being relaxed and confident and, and all of those things and, and feeling happy about um, revising and enjoying revision. But it, it, we'll get onto the mobile telephone stuff. It's kind of the same thing. Is that you know it's it's pretty obvious if you're using up brain power to do something else, you're not doing what you're there to do, which is to revise. Yeah. And like, and one of the studies we didn't include, but I think there's this kind of um, it's kind of like it's called the Mozart effect. And it's kind of like a bit of a myth actually that kind of just got warped from some research paper years ago, and now kind of and it gave the impression that if you listen to classical music, you'll 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 become smarter and you'll do better. Uh, and it's just one of those things that sounds good and sounds kind of sciencey and researchy, but actually, like, there wasn't much behind that to begin with, I don't think. And you can say that about a lot of the studies, which is why it's so interesting. I mean, I have a copy, well, I always recommend to have a copy by the loo because it's nicer to pick up and just look at it. And you go, well, that kind of, kind of makes sense. It's the same thing with uh, retrieval practice, for instance. You know, I always thought that reading lots and lots of notes was a really, really good thing to do. The more you read, the more it gets stuck in there. But actually, it turns out not to be very efficient. No, it's interesting. So it's interesting kind of to overlap there that if a lot of our students are listening to music with lyrics while rereading and highlighting their notes, which yeah. is probably quite a common practice, yeah. there are more effective and more efficient ways to do it that we could be teaching our students and can be found in the classroom implication part of the book and, and something else that is really interesting is that especially given the, the time that we've just went through or still going through sorry is that a lot of young people are accessing their learning and their study through iPads and Chromebooks and, and other devices and I found the one about electronic note taking quite fascinating so can I ask is there a difference between taking notes on paper and note taking on a laptop or an iPad? Uh, yeah, shall I take this one, Ed? Yeah, go for it, Brad. Uh, so this paper, uh, I think it actually wins the award for like the best title of a research paper from our book. I think the research is called it something like The Pen is Mightier Than the Keyboard, which is just an awesome title for a, for a research paper. Uh, and yet in their study, um, which hasn't always been directly replicated, but gives an indication, is they found that students who took... And I'm oversimplifying the results here, but essentially students who took notes by hand did better uh, in terms of recall of the lesson and how they did in subsequent tests than those who did it electronically. Um, and there's probably two factors, I think, at play here. The first is people can type faster than they can write by hand. And so when people type, what they found is people tend to just type verbatim what the teacher or the lecturer was saying. So I'm just going to copy down exactly what you say and type it as fast as I can. And this actually led to quite a shallow processing of the information because you didn't ever have to do any summary. You didn't have to do any reflection. You're just copying down word for word. Whereas when you do it by hand, because it's slower, you can't do every word. So you have to choose what's the important parts. And by having that wrestle with that content uh, to decide what to put down, that level of difficulty tended to improve, um, make people learn on a deeper level. So I think we have one level of like on what level it's processed on. And the other one is just, just tons of related research around if you give people 
laptops and tablets, especially if they have internet and they have free access. Um, people will go on Facebook and people will go on Instagram and they'll do all the other things. So even though this research paper actually controlled, I think, for those ones, if you look at the research around it, um, that's, that's another factor. And that's before you've even got into the actual cost uh, financially of it as well. Um, so yeah, uh, I'm quite old school now. The more like, I consider myself to be fairly progressive and yet the more research I read, actually, I think, oh, actually sometimes like the old school methods, like they make you work for it. And that's a good thing. Um, so yeah, I'm quite a fan of note taking by hand instead now. You see, that's the that's the main difference in terms of because you mentioned that the speed and efficiency of note taking, you can copy word for word what the the lecturer or teacher is saying. The effort of having to process and synthesise yeah. what they're saying to write it down is that the part of it that makes note taking by hand much more effective. Yeah, uh, and that's I think. Uh, one of the trends, I think, when we, if you go through the whole book is, generally speaking, the stuff that makes people think harder and makes it like a bit more difficult, not too difficult, but just like that makes you wrestle with the information, makes you think harder, which handwriting does compared to note taking on, on a laptop, um, improves memory. Uh, so we should always be looking at avenues on how do we make sure we cram that hour long lesson with 60 minutes of students doing hard thinking as much as possible. Um, and yeah, I think note taking by hand help. It's just one little way that you can help do that. Definitely, and it kind of echoes there of what Doug Lamov writes about in terms of who's doing the heavy lifting in the in the, right. lesson, the teacher or is it the student? And to to move on again, um, Ed, can I can I come to you? And in the book, you write that the need to educate students about the importance of sleep is paramount. Why is it? Absolutely, that? I am. I have to say. I've been banging this drum for forever. And I've, I, as a parent, I've always said to um, new parents is the most important gift you can give your child is the ability to sleep and to sleep for regularly and for the correct amount of time. That is the most important thing that you can deliver for a child. Um, and, and you can see it in your day to day life with children is that when they're sleep deprived, they're a nightmare. When they've had enough sleep, they, they're reasonably rational, rational people. Uh, and then you look at, if you look at the research behind it, there's, there's two aspects here. One of which is turning up to the classroom and actually being able to understand what you say and being interested in it and being able to concentrate on it and being able to encode it into the, into the brain. So that's one aspect. And then also there's some, there's some, some stuff going on in the brain at, at night where you're actually putting it into the long-term memory. So there's two aspects to it whereby it's where it's bad and the really the, the, the big thing that I've, I've found, I think, in the last 10 to um, 14 years when we've been working in education is that when, when we go into schools and we ask, how many, how many hours sleep do you have, right? And you go through the class, it's just got less and less. And now it's about six hours on average in a class. And the, and the recommended amount of sleep for a teenager is nine hours. And that three hours is coming out of, um, it's not coming out of, of, uh, so much out of um, deep sleep, which repairs the body, is coming out of rapid eye movement sleep, which is is all the stuff around the brain, repairing the brain and getting it fresh for class the next day. And so we've got this. We'd, we've been well, again. We'll come on to mobile telephones and their effect on this particular aspect. But we've kind of we've we've um, created this this generation that is hugely sleep deprived, and as a result, is less 
efficient and able to get stuff into their brains as effectively as perhaps we did when all we all we could do was hide underneath the blankets with a with a torch and read a book and then we'd just fall asleep um but mobile telephones don't really let you do that certainly and let's let's go there just now um because mobile phones are, are quite often a, a very hot topic in, in staff rooms and in schools, especially um, just just now we've got a, a bit of a TikTok disaster happening in Scotland with young people sharing um, sharing the questions on their, their, their assessments from their assessment papers. <laughs> um, so what does the research tell us about mobile phones? And let's stick with you, Edward. Yeah, again, this is... Again, one of those topics that it's really interesting because it's very controversial. I don't think you can deny that mobile telephones have changed our lives irreversibly and, you know, that we can find out information and we can get interested in topics and we can communicate with each other far, far better than we were ever able to do when, when perhaps we were growing up. Um, but I, we also have to just recognize that there are some serious downsides to these things. Um, they, they're incredibly addic addictive. They're designed to be incredibly addictive. Um, they, uh, by their addiction, they tend to keep um, kids awake at night. Um, they, uh, there is some really, really interesting research on what they do to performance. And so not just in schools, but in business has been some really simple research done on the idea of what happens to your performance when you have a phone next door to you. And, and the research is, the research uh, indicates that the phone doesn't even need to be on and it will reduce your performance. Um, so, and it doesn't even have to be your phone and it doesn't even, that phone doesn't even have to be on. It reduces your performance because it takes your concentration away from what you're trying to do. Um, and, and the other really, really, I mean, there's a couple of really interesting things here, Baz, um, probably as hardcore as I am on this one, is that uh, um, it's, there, is a, there is a difference in who it affects. It tends to affect disadvantaged kids more than, than advantaged kids. And you can come up with all sorts of hypotheses as to why that is, but that's what the research says. And it's, it's as much as a 14% drop in, in performance, and that's a huge drop in performance. Um, I, I'm getting, sorry, Brad, I'm going to steal your thunder here, is we, 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 we perhaps are calling it the wrong thing. It's not a mobile telephone. When do you see a kid ringing up their parents? I, I know from experience that my, my kid only rings me up if they want money. They never ring me up, even if it's an emergency, they don't ring me up. Um, so, so it's not really a, a, a telephone. It does all sorts of other good stuff, good stuff and bad stuff. Um, and, and so I think the challenge for my children, Brad's children, all of our children, the ones that we, we teach as well, is how do we cope with the fact that it's a great learning tool and good for learning, but at the same time is really, has got some serious dangers behind it, mainly around addiction. Sorry, Brad. No, it's true. I like, it's really, so like, I think if you're designing any policy, especially around teaching and learning, the first thing you ask yourself is like, are we confident there's going to be a learning gain from this tool? Uh, and there's enough research out there from different studies from around the world that show that students who use their mobile phones a lot in class do worse than they would have if their phones weren't. Uh, Ed mentioned the sort of 
there was a huge study done around schools that had mobile phone bans and they had a significant improvement in their final grades. Um, so that's not to say they can't have a learning game, but chances are it will actually be a learning loss. Then you kind of go, okay, well, what's the well-being, like positives or minus? Uh, I don't think there are many adults who watch teenagers and go, I wish they were on their phones more. Like that would make their lives better if they were on their phones more. Uh, and and then you kind of get into, okay, so that's the well-being side of it and it's not great. And then you kind of go, well, what's the, let's talk about character development. And yet there's research that shows people have less meaningful interactions um, if there's a mobile phone on the table. And so you kind of go, and that's before you even got into the financial cost of um, trying to weave in technology to the classroom. Uh, and sometimes I guess it's worth distinguishing the concept of mobile phones in the classroom and the use of technology in the classroom because they can be different things. Um, but I'm fairly confident, I'm just speaking on my behalf here, so Ed, feel free to let me know if you disagree. But if I was starting a school from scratch and I didn't have any, I could just do any policies I want, I'd be pretty happy to say, let's not have mobile phones in the classroom or on, if I see it on, on site, we're gonna take it away. Um, because I just don't think there's a learning gain overall um, to be had from it. Yeah, I'll, I'll go for that. And it is incredibly difficult because you know, there's a lot of peer pressure and there's a lot of parental pressure as well. So you can't have your kid coming back and saying, oh, everybody in the class has got one except for me, because that's not going to work. And then, you know, kids are online till two or three o'clock in the morning because everyone else is online till two or three o'clock in the morning. And, and so you get into the whole sleep thing. I think that one of the best ideas that I've ever seen that came from a bunch of students actually was the idea of having having a, a club where say at 11:30 nobody is online. And if nobody's online, then you can go, then you can all go to sleep. No, certainly yeah. it's interesting how it interacts with things. You spoke about character and children communicating with each other and that developing that kind of social skills. Um, also aligned to what we mentioned earlier about sleep and it's interesting because you can do all the retrieval practice and interleaving that you want, but if the, the children are, are sleep deprived and constantly distracted by their mobile phone, it's going to really hinder the, hinder the learning. Yeah. And just to kind of go back to sleep quickly, if I may, um, like I think to put it bluntly, there is a sleep crisis in the UK with our students. Like there's absolutely a sleep crisis with them not getting, as I'd said, anywhere near enough. And what I find interesting with anything that's related to the science of learning is it doesn't have to be either academic gains or a pastoral gain. Stuff like sleep is a great example of, it's a combination of the two. You get the payoff academically in terms of grades and you get the payoff from a well-being and pastoral side of things. And sometimes we say when we do our workshops to schools and to parents, if your child gets enough sleep, if they have, say for example, breakfast each morning, um and they're not on their phones all the time in school or at home they have a massive head start in terms of they're probably like nine tenths above everyone else in terms of like nine out of ten people don't do that uh and that's before we've even talked about intelligence or how you revise like retrieval practice it absolutely is fundamental and it'd be i wouldn't ever want any discussion around teaching and learning to only focus around memory and memory strategies because it really is as you kind of so this kind of interconnected web of they all underpin each other. No, it's, it's interesting because a lot of a lot of discussion in education has narrowed itself down to memory 
but it's important that we recognise the the whole being of a of a child and you know if they can get a good night's sleep if they're well fed if they're cared for and they're at that point um i think uh in in scotland if you'd say in england and scotland there's, a, there's often said maslow's before blooms <laughs> yeah. they need to be safe and secure and ready before they can we can bother and- yeah, and to be fair, I love the memory stuff. So, like, myself, like, reading about and really understanding cognitive load theory and dual coding has massively impacted on my career. And the language that's now being used by teachers and, indeed, something like Department of Education and Ofsted in England and those sort of things, it's so re- – it's, it's it, from a cognitive science perspective, it's fantastic to see that is now becoming more mainstream because we're really considering – like the cognitive architecture of the brain and how that impacts on what we do in the classroom. Um, so I do think it's brilliant that that sort of thing is being discussed. But as you say, it's just important to kind of see the whole picture in the round as well while, whilst focusing on that stuff. Hence the requirement for 99 studies. Yeah, there you go. Well done, Ed. Certainly is. So we're going to move back into the, the classroom, so to speak. Um, I find the study on on teachers' mindsets fascinating, and it got me really thinking about my own teachers and what they said to me. Really interesting. So what impact can can a teacher's mindset have on their students' performance? Um, So it's an interesting one because anytime you say the word mindset, it's a fascinating area because it was kind of, I guess, the first psych theory in the last decade to really go mainstream in education and then it kind of got a bit maligned um i don't know if you saw the last pisa report found a really strong correlation between growth mindset and student grades so like there's definitely something there and yet when we do research when well, we do when, when cleverer people than us have done the research um teacher mindset hasn't often led to student mindset in terms of if teachers have a growth mindset doesn't necessarily mean their students will have a growth mindset but the one study that you mentioned there that we put in the book was quite fascinating so the way the setup of the study worked was teachers were told about a hypothetical situation that first exam of the year one of your students gets a really low mark and what uh, and how do you respond basically and they found teachers with the growth mindset basically said it's too early to make a judgment call because they believed ability could get better uh, and they were much more like to focus on what they call a strategy approach, uh, which is let me break the task down. Uh, let me talk you through this step by step. I'm going to set you extra work because you need to practice. No, next week I'm going to call on you in class because it's the only way you're going to kind of get better. Whereas those with the fixed mindset were more likely to say that low mark was proof, if you like, of low ability. And with good intentions, go for more of a comfort approach, the researchers labeled it. So comfort being it's okay, not everyone can be good at everything. I'm sure you've got other strengths. Um, either do the easier work or I'm not gonna try to, I won't embarrass you by asking, calling on you in class to answer. And what makes the kicker in this study was when they then interviewed students and they took them through this process of, you got a bad mark, your teacher does either strategy or your teacher does this comfort approach. The students who got strategy had were way more motivated and had higher self expectations because they feel like they knew what to do to get better. Whereas the students who had a comfort response from their teacher actually misinterpreted that as proof that the teacher doesn't believe that they could get better. Um, Now, of course, it doesn't have to be that binary. As an educator, you can always do both comfort and strategy. Mm -hmm. But I look back into my early practice when I used to to teach and 
I thought I was being so inclusive and so warm and I'd create an environment where like no one would ever leave there upset because they'd failed. And although I think that's still partially important, I do look back and I go, was I just lowering my expectations and indeed their expectations for, because I was making them feel better about their failure, but I wasn't making them better at the task, which was just dooming them to more failure long-term. Uh, and I do worry that the pendulum swung so much the other way that people are so focused on making people feel better about their mistakes and not actually getting better at the task. Mm, certainly, and giving them that challenge. And it kind of marries up to the one on teachers' expectations, the was it Pygmalion in the classroom. Can you share a little bit about that? Yes. Okay. I, I For me, this is a fantastic study. Um, basically... If the the idea is that if you have higher expectations, you get that you get greater rewards, and it's really uh, you get greater performance, and it really is easy to demonstrate. It's, you can play simple experiments in, in the classroom to demonstrate that actually, if 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 teachers have higher expectations, the students have higher expectations, and they perform better. It's it's uh, it we do it as part of our workshops, and it's and it's a sensational experiment because it just it's orders of magnitude as well. Uh, and, and that's all set by, by the teachers, uh, the expectations and the challenge around that. Uh, and, and Bradley might want to chip in here. There's another, there's another study around the, you know, the balance between challenge and expectations and support in, in doing that and, and that, how that helps res with resilience. Yeah, uh, the Pygmalion stuff is generally, I think, so fascinating. Uh, um, some of the subsequent research around uh, has its most impact at the start of a term or start of a project because um, basically it allows the students to have that expectations before their own self-doubts kick in um, so it kind of sets the tone uh, which I think is nice uh, and yeah the study that uh, Edward mentioned there about challenge and support um, that's probably one of my favorite studies uh, in the book because it's about it links to expectations but also resilience and I love the stuff on resilience, but sometimes I worry it just becomes a buzzword. Uh, and yet this study, um, interestingly enough, done by researchers who previously looked at resilience in Olympic athletes, but then looked at wider population, uh, found that to create a resilient environment, the two main factors is kind of this high challenge or high expectations, but also having high levels of support available. Uh, and crucially, you need both um, to develop resilience. If you only have these high expectations, if you ask people to do more, but give them less to do it with, short term, you might get a little boost out of performance, but long term, it's unsustainable, it's relentless, it leads to burnout. Um, and so actually asking for help and knowing that help is available is actually one of the hallmarks of resilience, um, which I think is quite a nice way of, of seeing the importance of both. No, definitely. And I think I could recall when you mentioning that at the TEDx Mansion event back in, in 2019. So a lovely way to, to spin that around. And it brings me on to, you mentioned that's your favourite. So let's stick with you, Bradley. Um, if you were to narrow down uh, like the, the, the book into like, the top three like must-must-read studies for teachers that would have the highest impact in the classroom, what would you choose? Uh... I think I'd go for, I would go for that first one that we mentioned about memory because it touches on so many different strategies. So for me, that was almost like a gateway into research around you read the one study, but it made me want to read 
five other ones because I wanted to read everything that about retrieval and spacing uh, and interleaving. Um, so I think I'd go for that one. Uh, and I like that because it was large scale. Uh, it was it was big. Um, the other one that I quite liked, one of the re-ones of the study looked at, it's quite interesting. It looked at growth mindset in part, but also linked it to memory. And so it found that students with a growth mindset were actually more likely to value high learning strategies like retrieval over rereading. And I found that quite interesting because I hadn't really seen that link before. And for me, the reason I liked that study was it just kind of kind of confirms how interconnected all the different things are. And it makes sense because growth mindset, belief I want to get better, unless you know how to get better, ultimately will lead to frustration and burnout. If I believe I can improve, but I never do, that's not going to last. But if I know how to improve, I thought that was quite nice. Uh, and then the other one that I think I'd go for, um, actually, it's one of Hattie's uh, study. It was a big review on feedback. Uh, and the reason I liked it is he looks at four different types of feedback. So you can either give feedback on the outcome, the process, um, the person themselves, or how they self-regulated. And it looks at when's the best time to do each of those. Uh, but the other one I quite liked within that is the other finding is he basically, and he sums up so beautifully, I think, saying, any good feedback should answer three questions, uh, which essentially is, um, where am I? Uh, where do I want to get to? And where to next? And when we spoke to him about the study, he basically said that third one's like, it's a really important one of where to next, because for me, it kind of reminded me that feedback should lead to a call to action. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of what you mentioned about Douglas Love saying that students should do the heavy lifting. Like it's not enough for me to give feedback on, this is how you did on the test and here's what went well or what went bad if it doesn't lead to behavior change, I'm not improving the actual learner, then that's quite a time heavy exercise. Um, and given that feedback is one of these things that people talk all the time about. And yet whenever you hear about feedback training, the only training I ever got on feedback was that rubbish sandwich that everyone talks about of just going praise. Here's the important feedback that I really care about praise at the end. And yet that's not really based on that much research. And it's, I think as a professional, we should demand higher quality feedback training. And like that sort of research by Hattie and, and others, I think offers a starting point for that. Right, thank you. And can I ask the same question to you? And if you were to narrow it down to three must, must, must read. Well, as you can imagine, it's, um, as one of, one of the authors, it's really tricky to narrow down these 99 essential studies down to a mere three. Um, I, though, I'm more into, the, the way that I'm approaching this is I think actually the fundamentals are really important. And the fundamentals actually start outside the classroom, I think. And, and part of that is the education of, of, of the basics. And, and that starts at home. And, and I know this is something that people are getting, getting big into now is that how do we get you know, how do we educate, almost educate parents into what we're trying to, to start with so that when they arrive with you guys to do all of the really cool retrieval practice and, and cognitive load theory and all that sort of stuff, they're in a condition to actually learn. And some of that is, is mindset. So I'm going to choose, I'm also going to go with study number one. on, on uh, No, sorry, I'm going to go with, with, with Dweck on growth mindset because it's just an overarching... Uh, theory again that you may or may not agree with but most of it makes sense uh in that if you if you're praising people the right way 
uh, you're helping them with feedback, you're helping them to deal with setbacks and, and, and everything's a learning experience and helping them to take risks and, and not shy away from risks. That's sort of a fundamental um, approach to learning. Uh, and then, then, then I just, and you're going to expect me to say this, and I throw in a sleep one and a, and, a, and a phone one, because for me, that is the big, that is the big, I'm not going to say enemy, but it's the big obstacle, perhaps, that we as teachers um, and parents face at the moment is, is how are we going to, how are we going to help our students to be enthused about stuff and learn stuff if they can't concentrate and they can't stay away? It's just not possible. Definitely. It's a beautiful marry up there of, of what the Bradley's three and, and, and your three of you know, the, the, the high impact instructional learn, the teaching and learning and the, the prerequisites yeah. for coming into the classroom. So thank you. And can I press you both on one favourite? Oh God, that's a good question. Uh, I would say if I had to go for one favourite, uh, out of those three, uh, any? Okay, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll go for one. One thing that's not in those three, uh, just to sneak one more in. Um, <laughs> there's a really nice one on metacognition uh, that basically just had uh, a study that just got students to ask themselves just like two or three basic questions around uh, what resources are available to me and how can I use them most effectively. And they found asking those questions help them revise and learn and perform in subsequent tests significantly better um, because it got them reflecting on what they needed to do in order to learn. And I think the reason I like that is it's really actionable. Uh, it's not an abstract concept that I have to change my whole philosophy around. It's a case of you could implement the findings from this study tomorrow and see quick gain straight away. Uh, and it might not be life-changing huge, but it, it nudges it in the right direction. Um, and I think... I was always grasping for like tools like that. Uh, so it's just something that I can tangibly hook onto. So yeah, I think I'd go for probably one of that, that one. And I'm going to go for the growth mindset one just because I, I know it's very controversial, but I love it because it's kind of changed my relationships with my wife, my children, my everybody I work with, my football team. Um, and I've seen the, I've seen the results of being able to transform groups of people into particularly the idea of the, trying to get away from the blame culture. Mm -hmm. So I worked with a football team for a couple of seasons and it was just amazing. At the beginning, everyone blamed everyone else. So, you know, we didn't I never got the ball because the guy I was who was supposed to be passing to me was rubbish and didn't even look in my direction too. What can we do to get the ball out to the wings faster? And then having a, having the team itself, not the leader of the team, I the manager, working on the problem because there was no blame attached. It was all about how can we learn to do this better? What types of practice do we need to have? What type of, you know, what type of shape do we need to have? All of those. And for me, that was the big thing. And I see it in, in my kids. I see it in my relationships. I see it on the way that I think about stuff and the way that I've learned stuff over the last 10, 15 years, it's just a, an epic study. Sorry. No, brilliant. Thank you so, so much. So I'll bring us to the end of the interview section and I go on to my, my quick fire round, which are, are, are three quite quite loaded questions, which I, I ask for your thoughts on. Before we do that, um, where can people uh, go and buy your new book? And 
leave reviews and also where can people contact you guys and, and find out more about the work that you both do at Inner Drive? Okay, well, we've got, a, um, we've got quite a sizable website. That would be innerdrive.co.uk, on which you can find out what we're doing and, um, and get in contact with us. The, the book itself, you can buy from all major bookstores. Well, that'll be just Amazon. Um, and also you can buy it from the publishers, actually, from, from Routledge if you go to their, to their site. Um, the best thing probably that you could do is to, if you search up um, Inner Drive resources, you'll find a whole bunch of infographic, infographics that we've done over the last 10 years. Um, there's, I, I can't remember how many there are, there's, there's a lot. Uh, and a lot of, they're, they're useful in their own right in that you can put them up in your classroom and some people even plaster them up on the walls and all over the school. Um, but by by signing up for those, you'll get onto our mailing list and then we have a wonderful um, bunch of people who work with us who will tell everybody what we're up to and point out all of the good studies that are going on, even the ones that aren't in the book uh, and keep you up to date with what's what's new and what's good. No, definitely. I think is it, is it get my weekly email for it. Is it Lou? Lou, it in Lou. yes. Big shout out for Lou. Um, my, my weekly email. And I really encourage practitioners to check out those infographics, to check out the, the stuff you do. And I mentioned off there that I've done quite a few of your online courses, which are, which are worth their weight in gold and, and really well, they're incredibly well done. So thank you. And, and the same with the book. It, it just looks visually appealing as well as... Um, it's interesting because I think you mentioned it on uh, Teachers Talk Radio. You practice what you preach in the book as well because they're all mixed up. So you I mentioned... know, it's amazing. Isn't it? <laughs> but, I mean, that was quite nice. Is we we tried to interleave the topics and tried to build dual coding in terms of pictures and words. Um, if I'd have had my way, I'd have written a hundred word thesis on the nuances of some of the stuff. Um, but fortunately, I had Ed in my ear to remind me that I had to look visually beautiful as well. Definitely. Yeah, be short to the point and some some nice pictures. Definitely. There's, a, there's a lot of people that ask about kind of because there is so I'll start that again. There's so much research in yeah. education research that it can be intimidating for people to dip their toe into. And in, in the book, both books, I think mentioned my my copy of the seventy seven studies has been well thumbed. Um, it's just so accessible and it breaks it down. It breaks these big studies. You've taken the time to to read these big wordy technical studies and, and break them down for, for us to, to make them accessible. So thank you for that. And, and I really, really encourage listeners to, to go ahead and buy it. So we're now on to the quick fire round, which are my three questions, which I ask every guest. And how we'll do it as a last question and we'll go alphabetically. So I'll go Bradley first and Edward second. Um, so if you just, first thing that comes to your head, what, from your head, from your heart, or your head, whatever, whatever comes first, um, your first response, and we'll take it from there. So the first question is, uh, what makes great teaching for you? Okay, uh, what makes great teaching for me? Uh, I'll go, um, I guess, just an underpin, a culture of high expectations. I think believing that all of your students can get better and can improve and just not accepting the first answer or the easy answer or that some people won't get it. Um, and I think that's quite tiring and exhausting at times, but I think once you have that culture of high expectations, it then leads on to 
then how do we improve? But we've got to have that as our starting point. Um, and I do think that's why probably most people get into education because they believe that and want to facilitate that. So yeah, I think culture of high expectations, more so around behaviour and learning as opposed to just, just outcomes. And I'm going to go for inspiration. Uh, inspiring your students to love your subject and above all, love learning. And my, the greatest teachers that I've ever been taught by, that's the thing that distinguishes them. And you, we all know those people, we know their names off by heart. And they're, you know, that's because they inspired us and they made us great learners and, and they made us love their subject. Definitely. I, I think I've mentioned before in the podcast, my chemistry teacher, Mr. Jones, had to be the coolest old man I've ever met in my life. <laughs> and, uh, I'm mad. <laughs> I'm not old. <laughs> he was that he was that inspiration and made me made me just love learning in his classroom but also going back to what Bradley said he had sky high expectations I can remember what vivid images of him looming over me to answer a question because he just knew I had it but right. it, took a while, it took a while to get out my second question to you then is what one thing would you prioritize to bring about great teaching in every classroom um, if I could only prioritise one thing, uh, I think it would be making as many teachers as possible research informed as, as they possibly can be. Uh, I still think elements of initial teacher training, um, which are starting to look at more of this sort of stuff, uh, I, I think that could be continue to be developed. Uh, high quality CPD. Like it's so, I think it could be quite isolating being the only adult in your classroom day in, day out, and hard to escape that bubble. And the only way to get better is to, is to learn. So I think high quality CPD that's based on research. And even if you disagree with some of the research, uh, because there is conflicting research around certain things that are out there, but at least it sparks debate around best practice. And we think about why we're doing what we're doing. And I think that only comes from initially from reading some of the research and exploring what does that mean for my subject and my context. Um, so yeah, I think having an evidence-based culture around how do we get better as practitioners would, would be what I'd go for. And I'm going to, if you're going to allow me here, just cheat ever so slightly. So I'm going to go, I would prioritise teaching our students the tools and techniques to learn effectively and efficiently, um, but also teaching teaching them about the basics, sleep and mobile phone management. Because no one else is going to teach them. You're very correct. You're very correct. There is a, a role to play to, yeah. to make sure that, that, that they are aware. So thank you very much. And my final question to you both is, if you could change just one thing in education, what would that be? If I could change one thing... Um... I think and I hope society has a, a newfound appreciation for teachers given what's happened in the last few lockdowns and everyone's realised just how hard life is uh, without them. Um, and I think it should be seen as a high status career. Uh, and I think partly the only way to do that is if we pay teachers more. Um, so if I could change uh, one thing, uh, I think it'd be the status that 
teachers are held in, and part of that's reflected probably is in teacher pay. Um, and I am going to go. Basically, he's Nick my one. Um, <laughs> I'm going to. Go, <laughs> I should give you a good kicking when you come into the office on Friday. The uh, I'm, I'm actually going to go for the same thing. I'm actually going to take it from a slightly different angle, and that is, if if we think about what the the actual why we have schools and why teachers are so important is because. They take our, the young people in our society, our community, our, our, our country, um, and they, their role in life is to produce people who are going to add to that society, that community, that, that country, and make the world a better place. And so for me, the teachers are, are our primary leaders in life. Um, and, and so from, from that aspect, we need to a give them more respect and b we need to give them more support and c i absolutely think they should be paid a decent oh. wage oh, sorry i'm not saying you're not paid a decent wage but i do think that it's just it's just it, it's not we've got it all upside down is that we're, we're paying the people who just move figures around lots of money and we're not paying people who make a difference to the world at least an equal amount of money Certainly, I could I probably attest to every single listener listening to this is going, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> but it's right. And an interesting conversation with one of my previous guests, Mark Jesnick, around this idea is when people talk about classroom teaching, they say, I'm just a classroom teacher. You know. But there's so much, so, so much more than that. You know, that as you, as you, kind of you articulated there, Edward, they're so vital for young people and, and without them, Without without classroom teachers, who who knows where we'd be and what would be like. So thank yeah, you. Well, it is anarchy already, but no. It's not. <laughs> so thank you so much for that. That brings us to the end of the podcast. So all that's left for me to do is to thank you so so much for giving up your time on this Monday evening to to speak with me for the Becoming Educated podcast. Cheers. Thank you so thank much. You much. much. Well. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Becoming Educated. As ever, I would be delighted to hear your thoughts and you can contact me via Twitter at DNLesley or via email. So that you don't miss out, I urge you to subscribe to the podcast. And while I have your attention, why not submit a review of the podcast wherever you get yours from so that many, many others can access Becoming Educated. I'll be back next week with another episode of Becoming Educated and I do hope to see you there.